This is Rolled Doll. That was good. Yeah, that was really that good. That was really Ian. good. That was the best you've done. Yeah. Let's leave it in. Well, I, that's how good it was. This is a canceled author. I don't know if he's canceled. He's fine. He's been he's been oh, dead he's since 1990. You think death is going to stop somebody from being canceled? Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argyris and this week I'm looking for the best Roald Dahl book. Roald Dahl book. Roald Dahl book. Roald Dahl book. Yep. Roald Dahl book. Like one Dahl book. Sounds like a that soccer, soccer player. Yeah. yeah, the soccer player. To help me are two high school English teachers, Ian and Messi. Joe. Hi, Nick. My name's Roald Dahl. I'm a high school Holshue teacher. And if you're looking Jesus. for a world... T- All right. My name's Joe Holshue. Ian's I'm having, a high school Joe's English having a teacher. stroke live. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking for a Roald Dahl book, I brought probably the one Roald Dahl book that most people can name. Like, if you ask them, name a Roald Dahl book. James the Giant the Peach. They're going to name. Yep. No, no. That, the no. Witches. Okay, let's try it again. Name a Roald Dahl book. The other one. Charlie and the Good Glass Elevator. No, okay, yeah. I brought Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, it's it's super good. Good afternoon, widgets. Good afternoon, Fifinellas. Today I'm Doctor of Gremlins Ian DeYoung, and I'm here to solve your infestation issues. I'm bringing Roald Dahl's first ever children's book, first ever published book, The Gremlins. Is this the same one as the movie? I'm sure we'll get into it. No, we'll get into it. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. (laughs) Who who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. (laughs) I'm, I'm loving kind of the the terror in our bones this week. Nick rules, as you know, Litheads. Nick rules this podcast with an iron claw, mm-hmm. red and tooth and claw, an iron fist. And <laughs> an iron this week, uh, book. An iron book, an iron bookmark. He rules, he whacks us with an iron bookmark. Whoa, I, hold on now. <laughs> we're naughty. <laughs> well, and Nick's in charge of the edit of the show, so he comes across and everyone's like, Nick is so funny and so laid back and so hilarious. And we he say, cuts yeah, out. He, he says so much show. stupid stuff and he just cuts it right out. Anyway, <laughs> Nick this week decided, or last week decided to just wield. I hear a lot of compliments going on. <laughs> to wield his power. And he said, not only do I want to do Roald Dahl as our yes. theme, but also I'm going to assign you the, the books you're reading. So he looked at the book list and he... He assigned us these books, and I am delighted that he assigned me the book he's assigned me because I probably wouldn't have read it otherwise, and it's a fascinating story. And Joseph, would you like to say something nice about me too? I, I, I feel like this book has been foisted upon me against my will. It is the last book I would... No, actually, I think Joe is presenting if, under if I had been If I had been allowed to choose my own book last week under the category of Roald Dahl, this is not the book I would have chosen, Ooh. right? It just seems a little basic a okay. little vanilla joe you lose but it's a classic <laughs> but it's a, but i loved it like i and and i felt so stupid loving it this week because like of course i loved it it's charlie and the chocolate factory it's like when you are kind of guilted into ordering a pumpkin pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks, mm, and then right. you drink it and you're like this is actually this is actually kind of good right or like when you watch like the most popular movie well, it of heads that the pumpkin spice lattes back welcome to the first sponsored episode <laughs> Brought to you this by week, pumpkin we'll spice. be having sound effects the sounds <laughs> of pumpkin spice latte i'll kick us off here what are the sounds of pumpkin spice latte is it just the smashing pumpkins Ooh. 
Crickets, crickets. No, no pumpkin jokes ready to go from you guys. Sing a smashing Shame pumpkin song now. This Do is it a now. sponsored episode. Starbucks is paying us a lot of money. Uh, well, welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, or as we call it, strongly podcast, where every week I pick a theme, genre, or other, or the Litheads do. Sometimes you pick an other. Uh, sometimes I pick another. Uh, Ian and Joe, two high school English teachers, provide book recommendations, and just to upset one of them, we pick a winner. You know, there's a lot mm. of there's a lot of. Sorry, you're cruising. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Heads, I Why don't you talk, Ian, while I have this pumpkin spice latte? <laughs> Thank you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, guys, Nick has a foam mustache right now. It's, it's got a little bit of orange in it. it it's glistening. It's so good. You know, we, we talk a lot about how good Joe and I are at books, but mm-hmm. not so much about our prowess as fighters, as, as conflictual individuals. Um, I mean, I vanquished a bear when I was 13 years old in single <laughs> combat. I'm lost. <laughs> I, I missed the connection entirely. Rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers gentlemen <laughs> i don't want to know about the elevator just quite yet <laughs> rule number two omit needless words joe omit needless words uh, joe that- <laughs> right. baba booey and is rule number word, three joe. don't say it only winning matters vince lombardi what are you guys going to do to win today uh i'm going to follow gonna- the shadow rolls which are do <laughs> don't let them near water don't feed them after midnight and they hate light don't I- let them in the light the sun will kill them is that from that Mel Gibson movie? Uh, Mel Brooks. Uh, it's from, yes, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. <laughs> what the was Passion that movie of the called? Christ by Mel Brooks. How did Mel Brooks not do Passion of the Christ at, oh like, as a parody? <laughs> I think he's dead. <laughs> he's alive. Rob Reiner's uh, dead. Or the Reiner brothers. No, dead. Rob Reiner's not dead. No, Carl Reiner is dead. Do you know that Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks are like, well, they were, they were best friends in the entire world. They lived next door to each other for 60 years and every single night they would eat dinner together and watch Jeopardy. Um, then Carl Reiner died and now Mel Brooks presumably does those things. Mel Brooks is 96 years old and, uh, he is apparently not dead yet. He and Queen Elizabeth, uh, (laughs) Carl, (laughs) I think I missed something curses. Yep. Suck it, Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> Careful, you're going to get arrested like that protester. Yeah, like that Long live Mel Brooks. <laughs> yep. Um, Joseph, do you want to take 30 seconds and tell me what your book is about? Well, I feel like Ian was telling us something, but sure, I'll take that. Oh, time. he was? Uh, Ian, <laughs> do you want to tell us, uh, take 30 seconds, then tell us what you were telling us about? Uh, sure. Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and a bunch of other funny guys were on a show in the 1950s called Sid Caesar, uh, your show of shows. And it was. Uh, like live comedy. It was like live sketch comedy. Oh, uh, yeah. And it was hugely influential for a bunch of uh, uh, later comedians and my later comedians ever since. And my folks uh, introduced, my folks are not big on comedy, but they, they did have us watch a ton of this live sketch comedy from the 1950s. I'm sorry. What is it called? It's, it's called the show of shows. Your, your show you of say? shows. Your show of shows. Is it good, clean, fun? Is that why you were yes, allowed to watch it? that is why. It was yeah. good, clean, they're fun. They're not fan of comedy? No, they're not, not like against comedy. It's just like they're not going to go out of their way to find comedy. It's like my spouse <laughs> hates stand-up. It's not It's not, mm, it's that's not fair. Dis- <laughs> you have to really be in the right mood for stand-up to work. Otherwise, it's like, this is really weird. I don't need to watch this. Strange thing. Joseph, do you want to take 30 seconds and uh, tell me what your book is all about? I've never heard of it. 
Absolutely, Nick. Well, it's not going to work because my first line is, Nick, I think you're familiar with this one. So maybe we can mm. try it again. You could be like, I'm super Take aware it of it. Do it again. All right. All There's right, like Nick. half your time is wasted. All right, right Nick, five children from around the world are lucky enough to find golden tickets tucked away in their candy bars. From there, they are lured to a mysterious candy factory where they are one by one murdered in front of their parents <laughs> in a series of punishments that fit their moral failings. It's pretty much the movie Seven if a movie soundtrack was sung by indentured servants who happen to be African pygmies. <sighs> wow. I love it. Joe, I'm in. <laughs> it's a pretty good promise. Yeah. I'm ready for this author to be canceled in a whole new light. Whole new light. Ian. Yeah. Ian. Yeah. Your time has started, but I'm not going to start the timer. I don't feel like it. So just keep track, please. Yeah, honor system. When I say gremlin, you say gremlin you probably think uh, of a very water? odd very commercialized 1984 movie with gizmo and the monsters mm-hmm. but what if i told you that before mogwai were terrorizing the snowy landscape of kingston falls they were terrorizing walt disney roald Dahl, and great britain's air force this week i brought roald Dahl's first ever published book the gremlins and gremlins. the fascinating story of how this book does and doesn't exist very intriguing about the things that you said, Ian. Good. Very intriguing. Very intriguing about the things that I, I like said. the words that you used, and they shall be forever be blessed. Yes, I know. Yeah. Thank you. Now they're permanent they on the are. internet. They are. Oh, God. That, they, that, they, <laughs> they, call, they call podcasting the only permanent record. The, this sounds interesting. I feel like we should start uh, from the very beginning, uh, yeah. Ian. Uh, why don't, why don't, tell us where it all began. Yeah. Okay. So guys, I need you. I really need two things for me this week. I need, first of all, I need two things. I need you guys to, I need you guys to be, to be patient and I need you to listen. <laughs> two of our best quality. Because I'm the, <laughs> I thought the second one was. <laughs> I know, I know. You, you guys are good at both of these. So it's going to rock. I'm going to this week, because of the nature of my book, I'm going to kind of break the genre a little bit. And I'm going to tell you a story of the history of this book. And the, the claim here is not that this book is high art or fine literature. Rather, that there is a really cool, weird story of which the Gremlins is a part. So I want you to kind of go along with me for the ride. Will you do that? Or will I be fighting with you all the way? Well, well, it depends how good your story is, but also I, I appreciate this, um, this outside of the box thinking. Yeah, mm, this is different. Candor. This is kind of like you, folks, you listen to like history podcasts and things and they like, somebody kind of talks for a while and tells a story and the other people are like, wow, that's stupid. Don't, I mean, d- hopefully not that, that kind of introduction. <laughs> but, um, Yikes. Uh, no, like no fact checking. Um, I want to start with, okay. I want to start with the word. Are you going to be posting sources? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to see your footnotes. I can. I actually wish the podcast was more like this. Ian, the, the PhD and Ian just came out and he well, got very serious when he was challenged on his sources. You say that Joe is kind of a joke, but, but actually the PhD that I did was focused on the study of the history of the book, which is um, an approach which looks at books as physical material objects and says, okay, how did this physical material object come into being? And I think, Oftentimes, it's not really applicable to this podcast, but today it absolutely 100% is, in part because both The Gremlins, which is the book that I read, and a book that I'm going to talk about at the very end, which I didn't read, both of them are extremely valuable, very hard to find, and sort of don't exist. So, All right, jump jump in, Ian. You've peaked our interest. Okay, okay. Now, I've peaked your interest. And we just need to 
pause real quick to thank our sponsors once again yep. starbucks pumpkin spice lattes back everybody <laughs> that sounds great probably <sighs> It's called it's called um it's called preemptive. It's called preemptive sponsorship where we and then they reimburse us. The- <laughs> We're paying it forward <laughs> with all companies. <laughs> if you have an idea for an ad lit heads, just send it to us. We'll we'll be happy to read it. <laughs> can you please. Hey, Nick, can you please live on air? We're innovating. Nick, can you please yeah. put a button on the website that is um, submit, <laughs> submit, submit an ad, ad. suggest an ad. <laughs> we will we will within reason advertise odd things that you send us that would be stupendous please submit ads. Heads, not to put another thing on your plate you know we know we ask a lot of you you guys are honestly doing most of the work here yeah. but if you could mm-hmm. just start writing ads yeah, uh, we'd be happy be to great. read them that'd be great. that would be a delight okay and you were talking about book let's talk about the word let's talk about the word gremlins when i say gremlins what comes to mind uh, that thing from the movie Gremlins. I, I also I think of Gizmo as well. <laughs> the yeah, Gremlin. I mean, yeah. Uh, to be to be honest, uh, in the in the days leading up to this episode, I did rewatch Gremlins from 1984, directed oh. by Chris Columbus, um, and starring a bunch of people who you'd recognize but, but probably can't remember their names. Um, the only name I recognized was Phoebe Cates. Literally, everyone else was like, "Who now?" Um, well, and the. Famous, obviously the, the the starring the, yeah. role gizmo um yeah. so the origins of this word gremlin date back we're gonna get to the movie don't worry just hang with okay. me till we get there the origins of this word date back to the late 1930s actually the first time that we have evidence of this word existing is 1929 but in its current usage which is a small mischievous creature which is definitely not human but kind of has human characteristics this does date back to uh 1938 the oxford english dictionary quotes uh, a source which describes weird little creatures and this is a direct quote weird little creatures who fly about looking for unfortunate pilots who are either lost or in difficulties with the weather their chief haunts are ravines and the boulder covered tops of hills they fly about with scissors in each hand and try to cut the wires on an aeroplane this is widely held aviator folklore Oh, this is like uh, the um, the Twilight episode Zone. of Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone. Starring William yeah. Shatner. Yes. Yeah. And The Simpsons. Oh, boy. <laughs> yes. Treehouse of Simpsons. Horror. Of course, The Simpsons. Well, yes. you could just add that to anything you ever say. So, so okay. between... Well, I'm just trying to participate. Between... <laughs> and I do appreciate it. Simpsons did it. As South Park would say, Simpsons did it. Um, yes. Between... Um, As Joe would say. As Joe would say, as Joe has said, between the 1940s when Dahl was playing with with the Gremlin idea and the 1984 movie, um, the the primary incidence of Gremlins in um, popular culture is it's like called like Nightmare at 20,000 Feet or something. It's the famous William Shatner uh, episode of The Twilight Zone where um, there is a Gremlin on the wing of the aircraft. So that's 1938. Wow. William Shatner is very old. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Uh, well, he is. Yes, he's like in his 90s. But um, the passage oh, you meant the other way, the, the other passage, way. Got anyway, it. this is kind of like this widely held aviator folklore that there are these weird little creatures who fly around looking for unfortunate pilots and they sabotage the, the airplanes. And they're specifically um, not not pilots of pleasure craft or, or airline planes, but um, fighter pilots. And bombers, okay. um, war war pilots. Mm-hmm. So Roald Dahl in uh, World War II flew for the RAF, which is the Royal Air Force, the British uh, uh, British um, Air Force, RAP, the Queen. 
if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, he hung out with a lot of pilots. He heard their legends. He participated in kind of, I mean, he was, he was not just sticking around them. He was actually, he was trained as a pilot. He was, um, uh, an active, he, he is actually listed as a, as a confirmed ace, a, a pilot. An ace is a pilot is somebody who has five kills, at least five kills. And he shot down at least five other planes, probably more in his time as a pilot. So in 1943, he writes this book and we're going to, I'm going to just going to briefly summarize the book here. Um, and we'll keep on with the, the description of kind of, uh, where, Ian, where, where, where Ian, it goes in a minute. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. And I'm and I'm loving every minute, yep. yeah. minute of it. Yeah, ba 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 ba. Like to thank our future sponsor. <laughs> See, I, and I was so happy, Nick. You said I'm with it, but then I realized yeah. now that you maybe you weren't, and it was just a setup for that. Bit. Everything's an ad. Oh, it's true. It's <laughs> oh, true. It's, uh, that sounds like something from Glengarry Glenn Ross. In 1943, Roald Dahl writes a book called the gremlins it's about cute gremlins who are at first annoying and destru- destructive um pilots in the royal air force see the gremlins on the wings of their planes unscrewing um screws and popping out rivets and and sabotaging fuel lines and things and the gremlins are eventually tamed they are uh, eat used postage stamps that's their that's their food um, wow. and they're very cute and eventually they kind of help the RAF. We learn something about their origin. They used to live in this forest and then that forest was destroyed to make room for an airfield. And the gremlins tried, were trying to sabotage the planes to get revenge, but they're, they're tamed because as we know, uh, they eat the postage stamps and that makes them kind of more, more, um, biddable, more tame. They have funny names. Wait a minute. We know about postage stamps. I, cause I just told you. Right, because the gremlins eat the postage They learn stamp. this over time. They they kind of experiment with what right. the animals want to eat. Uh, they okay. have funny names. They're humanoid. They're generally harmless. They're really tiny and, again, cute. And the story ends with kind of the gremlins have been civilized. Um, there's a wounded pilot, and they help him kind of return to the skies. It feels very Disney. So mm-hmm. um, Seems like a nice story. It's a nice story. It's a very pleasant story. And, and the pleasantness of the story, please hang on to that because that be- becomes important later. Our friends in the sky. Yeah. we They start off as kind of this scary, concerning figure, this scary, concerning force. And gradually uh, they, are, they are civilized and they become uh, good soldiers in the fight against Hitler. There's a, a strange passage oh, where... Propaganda. Lovely. I mean, kind of. <laughs> There's a strange passage where uh, a pilot has to persuade a gremlin, hey, you shouldn't like sabotage our planes because we want to go get Hitler. And eventually the group right. agrees. Yes. Hitler is a worse threat than you. who Hitler bad. Homeland. It's like how Gandalf recruits the Eagles, right? Like it's, it's just like they're building I'm the war of all the armies. Yep. I'm getting the team together. The gremlins are one of the good guys. So Dahl publishes this book in 1943 and he, it was an initial print run of 50,000 copies. He bought 50 of those copies and he handed them out to people. He knew um, ambassadors, uh, the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, who liked to hand to read it to her, um, her grandchildren. Uh, and at some point, and, and that at some point is important. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. At some point, Walt Disney approached uh, Roald Dahl about making a movie. Uh, and this movie was kind of in progress for a while. It was, it was developing. Um, they have, they built gremlin character sets. There was concept art. And then the best way I can describe this is that Roald Dahl, this is his first published book, remember, Roald Dahl got grabby. Grabby. Is this like a Me Too thing or is this no, like... No, this is not like... Okay. Though he was uh, uh, fully cancelable from the Me Too perspective. Um, sure. 
Uh, he, he was, he got canceled from multiple perspectives. Fascinating. That's pretty good. He's a, he's a real triple threat. He was one of those who kind of, kind of had a sick wife and then ended up cheating on her with somebody. Uh, oh, not a great, yeah. anyway, not he a gets, look, he yeah. gets greedy. Uh, yeah. he says, first of all, I came up with the idea of gremlins. The gremlin IP is mine. It's mine. I tell you my precious. The reason right. I'm, well, it's, I, it's kind of folklore though. Exactly. That's the reason yeah. I read that origin piece because the origin is lost. He's claiming the gremlins, but they're not necessarily his. And Dahl has final cut privileges. He has final edit. And so he is being very dictatorial about what needs to be in, (laughs) what needs to be out. And Disney Uh knows this is money. Disney is trying to keep everything on the hook. They say, hey, okay, a movie isn't going to work. Let's do an animated short instead. But it was too late. Um, The movie kind of pretty quickly. uh, It didn't take too long for the situation to spiral out of control and the movie was toast. The movie was never made. This this sounds like pre Iron Fist Disney where <laughs> they when they were still said, willing to negotiate. Yeah, when they were still willing to negotiate where they didn't just give somebody a billion dollars for their their birthrights and uh, their firstborn child. Right. Right. Well, and and the other thing is so, so the research I did suggested that it's not as simple as and I, I'm presenting it simply. It's not as quite as simple as Doll claimed IP. They couldn't figure that out. The the deal is the copyright situation. This is the phrase I ran into over and over. The copyright situation was complex. So it is unclear whether Doll or Random House who published the book or Disney or some other individual, some other entity had the rights to kind of what was going on. But you're right. And it's important to remember that Disney was not sort of the cultural media powerhouse that it is today until about 20 years ago. Yeah, um, there was, weren't even sponsors of this episode. Yet. Well, no, yeah. Right. Thank, thank <laughs> you, Disney. Had a string Go of stinkers ahead over there. to Disney, dimsypumps.com. Dimsypumps.com. It's the place for Dimsy. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so this book was published, um, and... The reason I said at some point Disney approached Dahl is that it is not clear to me after quite a bit of research, probably too much. I should have been grading, but I was researching this. It's not clear to me. A's for everybody. Uh-huh. It's not clear to me whether Dahl came up with the idea of the book and then Disney approached him about the movie and the book was all that came out. Or if he published the book first Disney got a hold of the book and said, this is cool. Let's make a movie. And the movie then broke. The resources I found are contradictory. Some people are saying first he published the book, then Disney came calling. Others are saying he wrote the book as part of the Disney project. And when the movie fell through, all that remained was this book. And the reason I'm emphasizing mm, this is that the yep. I could not find a hard copy of this book. I couldn't. And, oh, and you know, wow. it's hard to do. But right. But you also have an extensive library network at your disposal. I do. Like you and, have and a university using network. That, using that library network, I was able to get uh, my hands on a scan of, I believe, the first edition. And the first edition has Disney-esque artwork in it, which would seem to suggest uh, that Dahl was working on the story. And then Disney said, let's make the book as part of the product. Title page says, The Gremlins. Mm-hmm. with some fun fun little gremlin guys hanging on it mm-hmm. from the Walt Disney production, a Royal air force story by flight Lieutenant Roald Dahl. 
um, published by Random House in New York. So what this tells us is that the book is being advertised as connected to the movie somehow. Yeah. Furthermore, from the production suggests to me that we're this is this is supposed to be tie-in merch. This yeah. is supposed to be, I saw the movie, now I'm going to go read the book. There's also an interesting connection that by calling him Flight Lieutenant Roald Dahl, there's the strong, like, he knows it's a Royal Air Force story. This is mm-hmm. legit. So the book yeah. was published. It's not clear kind of what the connection was. What is clear is that the book involves, includes a ton of beautiful artwork from the production process. Um, and I'm not super up on my my early Disney, but the closest comparison I can make is Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. The gremlins, yeah. they have kind of beards. They, are, they have those big noses that the dwarves do, kind of like yep. the big swoopy, bulbous noses. Yep. Some of the fun hats. The, the gremlins are really into clothes. Now we're talking. And mm-hmm. this, they, if they feel like, not, not dwarves knockoffs, knockoffs, but sort of along those lines. Um, after this was published, Dahl got into spying. He became a yeah. spy for a while. For I'm sorry, yeah, uh, yes, Roald Dahl was mm. a spy. Yeah, did you spy for the United States or double agent situation here? Uh, well, he was Brit, so he was spying for England. He was kind of with British intelligence, as I understand it. I didn't do a ton of research on this, but he was he was stationed in the U.S. in part. Um, he went to the U.S. after going to, after being in Britain. Britain was very, like, war-starved. They had real, like, tons of shortages. He got, got to the U.S. and he was like, wow, they have so much food here. That's nice. Um, so he came to the U.S. and he was doing spying. I don't believe he was spying on the U.S. I believe he was sort of just doing general spying. Um, I didn't do a ton of research on <laughs> you're, this, but you're this is what spy. I have listed in my notes as the spy interlude. Yeah. Yeah. So the impression I got as well is that he was just like, like he was just kind of passing information, I assume about the U.S. back to England, but it, which seemed like it seemed friendly, like friendly spying. Is right. What not like. not sort of um aggressive. Ian, are you trying to go viral? Is this a known like theory on the Internet? I'm not trying to go viral. What I'm doing is connecting dots. So there, there's very little there's very little about this book out there i had to kind of scrape stuff together so historians from various places um various roald doll fan sites um i will admit to starting at wikipedia for um kind of gathering gathering links um some of those links right, are but dead. if you follow the footnotes ian right then it's exactly okay. right um, that's what i did and some of those footnotes are dead which was super super annoying it's like here's a great resource oh it doesn't exist anymore um so so nick i'm not i didn't do any i didn't do any new research for this. What I'm doing is compiling the research, the the information that exists into something like a, a a comprehensible narrative. Um, I have a question. Yes, go ahead. The first sentence of the Wikipedia page says it was doll's first book and was written for Walt Disney productions in anticipation for a feature length animated film. You're saying it's not that simple. I'm saying it's not that simple. I'm saying huh, that sentence, that sentence makes it sound like Disney came to him and said, I heard through my mind tactics, you have a great sure. idea. Let's make a movie. <laughs> Subsequent evidence suggests that he published it first and that drew Disney in. Mm-hmm. Subsequent uh, uh, accounts of it. I don't see how that could be because the book is so heavily Disneyfied. But it's also possible there are earlier editions that are not so Disneyfied. Right. Like he's got a draft. Disney approaches him. They want a tie and he's like, I guess I can have like they can wear cute hats. Like, right. yeah, let me Disney it up a little bit. Right. But that's not that 
shocking, right? Like um, you hear like writers, you know, especially in like movie productions too, like the writing process isn't linear. Like you right. have like yes. rights to stories yeah, right. and that's sold off before anything is even published. Right. And that's why you mm-hmm. get awesome actors on the front of mo- books. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. And yep. et cetera, et cetera. But um, anyway. Um, in 1984, Steven Spielberg's company Amblin uh, uh, released the uh, science fiction horror comedy film Gremlins. It was heavily, um, heavily uh, commercialized. There were tons of toy tie-ins, tons of other kinds of tie-ins. Gremlins is, as we understand it, not particularly related to this Gremlins story Besides kind of general things about the gremlins are annoying. The gremlins get in the way. The gremlins are naughty. Um, in uh, in the movie, there's a lot more kind of obviously danger and people dying in horrifying ways. Um, the, the movie is. But if here's the kicker, and this is why I think the story is worth telling. If Roald Dahl had had his way, this would not have been the case. It would have been either his first gremlins book, which is the gremlins book I read or the second follow-up he published four years later. So he's in the war. It's 43. The movie falls through. The book is published. His first children's book. And then in 1945, we drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Dahl is an avid, a keen observer of kind of global politics he understands maybe he pays too much attention to things and comes up with bad ideas about jewish people um this led him down the wrong path in a lot of ways um but he 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 looked around him a lot so after world war ii he came back to the gremlins and he published a novel for adults this is not a kid's book called sometime never a fable for supermen in this book There is a familiar beginning. A pilot is flying in the Battle of Britain, 1943, spots a gremlin on his wing, but he doesn't tame the gremlin. He goes with some friends to discover the origins of this gremlin society. And it turns out in this story, again, like in the earlier story, gremlins were here first. But check it out. In this story, in in the second, the new book, the adult book, the gremlins are all in hiding because they're terrified of humans. So they are starting to come out of hiding around the time of the battle of Britain. They see Germany flying bombers over London and destroying it. And they say the gremlins say humans will destroy themselves. So we'll just wait and hang out. We're going to lay low smart, pretty good. So the, the gremlins plan is to stay in hiding and wait till humans destroy themselves. Then we have a time jump until after nuclear Armageddon, World War III and World War IV go off, nukes oh are used, and the gremlins take over the world. But wait, oh. they can't survive without humans for some reason. So Staffs. both humans and gremlins go extinct, and only worms survive. So this is the first novel, the first story published in the U.S. about nuclear war. Um, yeah. He's the first one to do it. Um, That's crazy. There is, apparently, it's not a super coherent metaphor because it flopped. Um, a lot of the reviews I read of it said it's not great. It doesn't right. like as far as sort of cold war satire or cold war like um, um, send ups. This is not very coherent, mm. but I'm fascinated by it because this is something that 
Dahl was invested enough in that he went back to it. And the first time was so happy and fuzzy. And the second one is this very, very dark story. There was, for some reason, it's been hugely popular in the Netherlands, printed, I think, (laughs) seven or nine times. I don't speak Dutch. I can't read it. So I, I don't, I can't read those copies. There was only one printing in the U.S., Copies are currently selling for hundreds of dollars because it's wow. so rare. So naturally, like I get through Gremlins. Gremlins is 49 pages. Yeah. I watch the movie. I say, what else is there? What else can I do? I'm doing research and I find sometime never. This sounds bonkers. Even if it's crappy, I want to read it. Dahl mm-hmm. only published two novels for adults. Almost all of his stuff was short stories or kids books. Mm-hmm. He comes back to the Gremlins. I want to read this. I go looking for it. No one has it. This book well, is impossible to find. Right. In English. In English. You want a Chinese Dutch. version. There, there's a pile of them. There are Dutch versions, but there are no, I cannot find any ebook copies of this. I went to WorldCat, which is a wonderful resource that links all of the libraries around the world and tells you like, hey, what's your location? The nearest copy of this book is 178 miles away in the special collections archives at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, if I discovered this more recently than the other day, you bet I would have gone there because (laughs) this is the book which sounds fascinating. And it's a book which is, it's got a beautiful cover design. It's Mm -hmm. weird. It's apparently super dismal. And you guys know how I love that. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to find. It's rare and precious. Right. It's tantalizing. It's It's tantalizing. Why is it called a fable for Superman? Oh, Superman. Superman. Oh, so that's disappointing. I wish it was Superman. Yeah, it would be nice. Right. He has like this a cautionary idea. tale for Superman. Right. By Lex Luthor. <laughs> Litheads. If you live near a copy of Sometime Never, it's 244 pages long. If it's in a public library, you should be able to get in there and just take some pictures with your phone. Mm-hmm. Just text, take it. Text them to just me. Steal it. My number is five 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 one two three four. No, 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 no. Talk, just text tuck me the all book the pictures. Five 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 one two three four. Send me a text message with all the pictures of the pages. I'll read it with joy. Now you really couldn't find a PDF of this, huh? No. There's a lot of books. Like it, there's a lot of books, even for this show, and we read relatively mainstream stuff. It's really tough to find digital versions of a lot of stuff that's even a little bit out of print. Like basically, if it stopped being in print before ebooks were like before Kindles were widely available, it's really tough to find a scan or a PDF of it. You know what's really interesting is that like all the reviews for it are like explaining the plot. Now, mind yeah. you, there's there's only like a hundred no 19 reviews on goodreads right all of them are like this book is about you know x y and z right that's not what <laughs> first off that's not, <laughs> that's not what a fucking review is second that's very strange i'd like if it feels like we have 19 people to reach out to and get to see where they got their copy from <laughs> well I, and when i was looking so i found a, a copy for i think 248 dollars online mm-hmm. 16 dollars no, shipping not gonna do that <laughs> i mean it's kind of a lot especially if the book kind of yeah. sucks but um the the, 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 the the seller put in the notes that um they were liquidating their collection of rolled doll books so this no. is a, definitely a collector's item and you know the farther we get away from the date of publication the more likely these books, these copies are to perish in fires, uh, to get water damage, to be lost. Mm-hmm. The ones yeah. that are in like the UC Berkeley library, Truthberry, those might be fine, but I don't know. I've talked a lot. This route kind of beginning with 
the folkloric t- uh, origins of the gremlin progressing through the, the, the second world war, the RAF um, Disney struggling with IP and copyright and eventually throwing up their hands and saying, doll, I'm not going to work with you doll leaving children's writing for t- almost 20 years while he was a spy publishing this redo on the gremlin novel. It doesn't take either. And now dolls gremlins are more or less lost to time, almost extinct the way that he imagines them at the end of sometime never. And the gremlins that are in the public eye are the very different commercialized gross, weird ones from the movie. Guys, a lot of September birthdays. We're just doing our best to get through them. Roll doll. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday in We're September. Honoring. Yeah. Uh, it's We're my honoring. wife's birthday. It's my nephew Lincoln's birthday. It's my right. father-in-law's birthday. Anybody yeah. else? Any other good authors besides those ones that Joe listed? <laughs> yeah, let's bring Truman Capote. I'm going to be a hipster and not bring the one that everyone's heard of. I'm going to bring a book called The Muses Are Heard. So in the 1950s, there were uh, a few uh, difficulties between the USSR and the rest of the world. So there was an opera company called the Everyman's Opera that went to tour the USSR in the 1950s. Capote went along. He wrote um, a, a piece for the New Yorker which is a narrative account of this this mission, this cultural mission. So I am. Ve- it looks it looks incredible and weird and hilarious. I'm very much looking forward to reading. The Muses Are Heard, published in 1956. And I am going to bring the one that everybody uh-huh. heard of because that's the good one. Obviously, Ian. <laughs> um, it's it, uh, it is of course made famous by the song by Deep Blue Something. Okay. Um, I'm talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's. I said, "How about Breakfast at Tiffany's?" She said, "Etc. Cetera, Etc." Cetera. All right, Nick. Um, I hope you are ready for a tone shift because I didn't bring some weird gremlin book and I didn't like go all to like libraries and get on WorldCat. I just brought Charlie and the Chocolate Chocolate Factory, a famous Roald Dahl book, his most famous book, his best-selling book of all time. And Nick, that's saying something because he has sold of all of his books, not Charlie and the Chocolate Joe, Factory. don't you start this thing about he sold more than R.L. Stein. No, he didn't. No, nobody has sold more than R.L. Stein, but he sold a bunch, 250 million copies worldwide of his books. Um, Nick, I've got a few world doll facts for you. Hey, Joe, that'd be great. Joe, yes, you can have yep. this for free because I also brought yep. doll facts, but I'm out of time. What I was going to call my segment was ready for this. Yep. Doll factory. Doll Factory. Really good. I brought my, I called my segment Roll Doll. That's how it is in my notes. Uh, Nick, he uh, okay. wrote stories well, in a shed in his backyard. Ian, feel free to just throw in any fun facts that you okay. have here. He wrote stories in a shed in his backyard. He never learned to type, or at least he didn't like typing, so he wrote everything out longhand. All of his stories were longhand. Um, when he was a boy in school, he lived near the Cadbury chocolate factory and Cadbury would send boxes of chocolates for the boys to like, see how they liked them. Like see if they thought they were good or not. Like taste test new chocolate. Do you think that maybe played a role? So he specifically (laughs) says in his memoir that he had this childhood fantasy of inventing a chocolate bar. So good that, that Cadbury gave him the factory. Gave him. So I 
think maybe there was something so may- to it. Maybe, yes. but not totally confirmed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, he wasn't, according to his English teacher, a particularly gifted writer. Um, his English teacher said on one of his report cards, quote, I have never met anybody who so persistently writes words, meaning the exact opposite of what is intended. Huh. Where is that teacher now? Well, and that's kind of what I said, because he is very playful with his language. Like, you know, when if you've even a little exposed to Roald Dahl, you're aware of things like snozberries and stuff like that. Um, See, teachers don't know anything, right, guys? N- no. In <laughs> fact, um, he invented, I'm putting big quotes around invented here, so many words, that there is a beautifully illustrated Oxford published Roald Dahl dictionary that has 250 entries. Hmm. Uh, my last fun fact about Roald Dahl is that he was buried with all of his favorite things, a pack of HB pencils, a bottle of red wine, bars of chocolate, his snooker cues, and a power saw, which apparently he just thought was oh, awesome. Boy. I think I prefer the <laughs> His thing. Favorite that, power saw. Um, Terry Pratchett got turned into uh, a sword. That was better story. Right. I like that well, one. Wait, did Terry Pratchett <laughs> get turned into a sword? I thought a meteor. I think no. he got yeah, a sword, sword forged out of a meteorite. Definitely not. Terry Pratchett, if you're listening, right <laughs> yeah. in and tell us what happened. I just have a few quick, like quick facts to fire off. Um, one of his most criticized books was written um, from uh, compiled from articles he wrote for the for Playboy magazine called the book was called Switch yeah. Bitch. Um, I thought that was a joke. Oh, Jesus, yep. what? It's incredibly happened? misogynist <laughs> and dreadful. He crashed a plane and went temporarily blind for a while. He helped invent a device mm-hmm. called a WDT valve to help kids heal from traumatic head injuries. He had a oh, daughter yeah. after his son fell. I yes. think his daughter fell. Yeah, uh, dreadful car accident. He had a daughter named Twenty, which I think is just a really bold move. And um, he gave up Christianity because he was talking to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Archbishop said, "Yes, your recently deceased daughter did go to heaven, but your dog did not go to heaven." And so Roald was like, "Well, oh, peace. I'm out. Peace be with you." <laughs> <laughs> And also, not with you, buddy. <laughs> Anybody who thinks that dogs don't go to heaven is it? They're wrong, right? Like everything that's good about about this life is inside of a dog. All right, so Nick, um, I I'm in a little bit of a weird situation here because Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's 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 a story that you know. I'm sorry, my book is called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We'll get into it later. Um, um, as Ian said, after. After um, Roald Dahl published the Gremlins, right, published Gremlins, and then he published his follow-up book, he wrote primarily for adults for the next, like, 20 years. And that was primarily through short short stories as well. So when you look at what he wrote in the interceding years, it's a lot of one-off stuff. He really kind of made his chops, right, made his living as a short story writer. Then in the early 1960s, he published his, his first children's story in a long time, James and the Giant Peach. Um, which apparently took off to enough acclaim that he then went on a streak of just writing children's books for quite a while after that. It's the classic thing where you're kind of struggling along as a writer for adults, and then you accidentally break through. We saw this with Stein. We saw this this with Pike. You accidentally break through into the young adult or children or the tween, the tween audience. Mm -hmm. I think these are are tween books. And he just was, he never looked back really. Yeah. And, and, and um, so after he followed up James and the giant peach with Charlie and the chocolate factory, and it was uh, extremely successful and he never looked back. So Nick, I guess I want to know what is your experience with this movie? I'm familiar with the movie, probably the same amount that, 
most people are familiar with the movie. Uh, something about kid goes to the factory, uh, death ensues, and then he wins. He wins the factory prize. Lots of body. There's a b- high body count, right? Yeah. There is yeah. a high body count. There is a high body count. Um, so if you've seen the 1974 version, if you've, I guess, if you've seen the Johnny Depp version, you have the broad strokes of this <laughs> story leave. down, right? Yes, please. You are no longer right now. That's welcome here. Um, if you've seen the Gene Wilder version, you really know the broad strokes of this film. Five kids find golden tickets. They get invited to a chocolate factory. All the character names you know, you even know their fates as they appear in the book for the most part part. Um, so what I brought today is just maybe some of the nuances that you might not know. So I guess basically what I brought today is these are some interesting ways in which the book is different than the movie that you thought that you've seen. Yeah. Great. First of all, I should say that Roald Dahl did not like the 1974 version of the canceled. His most cancelable offense because it's amazing, right? Is there a part where a little boy swells up and gets stuck in a tube? There is a part where a little boy. <laughs> Are we going to talk about how fucking weird this author is yet? <laughs> like he said some abominable things against Jewish people. He's a spy. This guy's mm-hmm. fucking bananas. This guy, I yeah, it's kind of cool. The thing he said now. about the Jewish people was in 1983. That's like a long, <laughs> yeah, long it's not even like it's a, not like I mean, it's it's never OK to be anti-Semitic. Um, there was a time when Nazism and anti-Semitism was more mainstream. Right. Henry Ford was publishing anti-Semitic mm-hmm. books. This is 1983. Yeah. He's like, well, Hitler was oppressing them for some reason. So, you know, just like, wait, what could possibly <laughs> I'm not that? saying I'm just saying. I mean, we've talked we've talked on like ad nausea about like the separating the author from his works. I did hear something kind of recently that I thought was pretty good. It was the idea of like, who owns the original star Wars trilogy? Who owns blade runner, right? Like who owns these things that like, you know, let's use star Wars that are beloved by fans that the creators can't stop tinkering with, right? The creators just don't leave alone after a while and make with every division a little bit worse. And I heard an argument that I thought was pretty good that said, look, Does George Lucas own Star Wars? Sure. But at a certain point, like, it belongs to the fans, right? Like, when you release the 19-whatever, 73, like, A New Hope, right? Um, Like, at a certain point, that belongs to the fans. And And when George Lucas tinkers with it and we get pissed at him, I think we're kind of right to do that. But if you subscribe to that, like if you think that there's a version of Star Wars out there, an unadulterated version of Star Wars that belongs to fans out there that is separate from its creator, its creator no longer owns it. I also think it's kind of valid to say, hey, maybe there's a version of Willy Wonka out there that is separate from its creator, right? Like maybe Willy Wonka belongs to the fans, right? And all the stuff that he said in 1983, just because it was written by somebody who maybe had some regressive ideas about, oh, race. A um, lot of things. Yeah, a lot of things. Like just because it was written by somebody with some regressive ideas doesn't affect the work itself. Or it doesn't, at least it, it doesn't invalidate. Joe, I was with you until that last phrase. So as I was like preparing and, and I tried not to just do all the doll research because doll is doll is so interesting and weird and, and scary in some ways. 
The fact is, I think that he's harder than others to separate from his art because so much of him spills over into his art. So he had a pretty traumatic childhood. He was like brutally beaten at school. And people have said, critics have said that like we see, I mean, you mentioned the Cadbury factory. That's a positive memory. We see in Mm -hmm. some of his depictions of school, like in the BFG, a serious kind of representation, working through that trauma like there are some of these, like the witches is apparently a, like a major downer of a book because there's mortality and there's grimness. And, and, and he's got kind of this, the, the, the most fascinating comparison I saw, which I know will resonate with you, Nick, is that he is like Vonnegut for kids. And he's like <laughs> pushing the envelope, being weird, being edgy, mm-hmm. kind of being alt, being alternative. And, and I think so like, Joe, I, I'm with you that we should separate art and artist. But he is a person who so much of his personality is in his art and so much of his art ended up influencing his personality. It's just it's a weird situation. It's not the same. Yeah, but that's true for all authors. No, it's not. I don't think it is. I don't think Cormac McCarthy is the same. It's the same way. Like, I don't I don't Mm. I don't know. There's a lot of, we've just had 10 minutes of claims without any backing. Let's just, can we <laughs> well, please move on here yeah, to uh, your I book? Like, I really like the claim that he's like Vonnegut for kids because like, I think there really is a hint of that. And I remember the first time I read a Kurt Vonnegut book, I've said it here before. I remember having this distinct moment, like this visceral feeling where I was like, whoa, I didn't know a book mm-hmm, could be like mm-hmm. this. This is so unlike anything I've read. It so goes against the norm of anything I've read, and I absolutely love it. I think if you're a kid and somebody reads you a Roald Dahl book for the first time and you see like the weird iconic illustrations in it and like you see this weird relationship between like kids and adults, like adults in these books are they're they're villains very often, right? Like there's like evil adults in these books that the kids win out over through their goodness and cleverness and cunningness. Like when you see this, like I think there is this feeling like, oh my God, I've never really seen a book like this that was for me. They're also like, they aren't fuzzy, this book. Like this book isn't like warm and fuzzy. This book is unsentimental. It's kind of macabre. It's kind of darkly comic, which is a weird tone for a children's book to hit. Okay. So let me give you some examples. There's Oompa Loompas in this book, Nick. Yes, I've heard of them. Yes. Orange funny pants. Let me stop you right there. Uh, the Oompa Loompas in this book are not orange. They also are quite a bit shorter than the Oompa Loompas in the movie, which I know sounds crazy, but the biggest Oompa Loompa in the book maybe comes up to your knee. They are like a tribal people. Um, a lot of critics say like, oh, well, they're African pygmies, like the men wear the men wear skins, um, the women wear leaves and the children run buck naked. I'm sorry, a lot of people. What do you what do you mean? Like, like, like when when people talk about this book, he's like, oh, right. When you read Willy Wonka, like and or when you read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas in the book are African pygmies. Like, like Roldell never comes out and says they were African pygmies, but the way he describes them is they are like extremely small and they are black and they wear the skins and leaves and the children are naked. That's who 
and 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 Willy Wonka has saved them from the monsters that ate them, where they fought over the cacao beans and brought them to his factory to work in some sort of reciprocity. Joe, boy, Joe are we ruining? <laughs> are we like Christ, live on air happening? ruining Roald Dahl for, for Nick? Is that what's happening? I okay, keep going. Yeah, the Oompa Loompas still sing their songs. They still sing iconic songs. But do you know how? No, like, now it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, it's not fun. No, now no, no. it's like. Oh my God, now it's like in. It's like song, like work in the field songs, no, isn't it? No, no. Oh, but kind of. It kind of is, though, no, isn't it? No, no. The songs are still about how Augustus Gloop, Augustus Gloop is a fat little nin can poop. Like they're still that sort of thing. They're Seems just like you got some slaves from Africa, and now they're singing the songs about picking cotton. So it's funny because um, when this book came out in America, and it was published first in America, uh, the NAACP did get involved a little bit. They had a couple of. <laughs> They had a couple of complaints. Yeah, just a couple um, of notes here. Just we just they like to did talk have a couple it. of notes. And when the movie was being released, I'm sorry. When the movie was being released, the NAACP stepped in, and they were like, "Hey, there's a couple things here that should probably be changed for the film." A couple um, things. Couple first couple of all, you. we don't think the Oompa Loompas should be pygmies. We don't think the Oompa Loompas should be African pygmies. Second of all, we think, and there's two different stories as to how this matters. Uh, as to how this came about they said we don't think you should call the book charlie and the chocolate factory right we think charlie is a loaded term we think that has um that has like some connotations we think you should call it willy wonka and the chocolate factory huh said the NAACP. the other story which i actually kind of believe a little bit more is at the time, um, Quaker Oats was planning on releasing their Willy Wonka chocolate bars, uh-huh. and they convinced the movie people to call it Willy yeah, Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in a little bit of brand synergy, right? Oh, so, this is back to Disney. This guy was a fucking sellout. <laughs> <laughs> this guy was selling propaganda to yeah, kids. Well, to be fair, I, let me stick up for Roald Dahl. Let me, let me be the sole voice sticking up for Roald Dahl here. Um, he hated the change. Right. He thought the change totally took the focus off Charlie. It totally put it on Willy Wonka. And he said, no, 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 no. This is Charlie's story. Like this story is Charlie's story. Willy Wonka should not be the title character in it. Huh? So the bars. Okay. Who's making these? Anyway, okay, whatever. There's candy bars. Eat your fucking candy bars. Our sponsor today is candy bars. (laughs) In the movie, if you're going off of the Gene Wilder movie, the Willy Wonka that you see in the movie is definitely darker than the Willy Wonka in the book. The Willy Wonka in the book is an eccentric old British gentleman. Oh, okay. Right? Like, he is not actively mischievous towards these kids. He is not actively trying to punish them, but they are in a dangerous place where you like if you are they're gonna have to learn some lessons if you're extremely (laughs) greedy or extremely spoiled bad things might just happen to you right like just kind of as not encouraged by Willy Wonka but he is an unapologetic bystander in all of this in the book it would be a shame if something were to happen it would be a shame if something were to happen in this place that Um, I've designed (laughs) in this torture dungeon (laughs) one observation that people frequently have about the movie is they say hey after augustus gloop gets sucked up that tube and after like violet turns into a giant blueberry 
and like you never see these kids get better, right? Like, like there's never any conclusion. Like they go off screen after they've been punished or after they've fallen into Willy Wonka's booby trap, right? Um, and you never see them come back. In the book, they do come back. The kids in this book do not die. They all are, however, grotesquely disfigured oh by their um, by their things. Like Augustus Gloop is all stretched out and really skinny from his ride up the tube. Violet is now permanently violet. Things like that. Let's just end with that. Childhood disfigurement. I will say <laughs> that one of the things I liked about this is the original draft of the book, draft one, um, did not just have five children going to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. It had 15 children going to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Much of this was fleshed out. There's other punishments and things that happened to these kids that did not make the page. So there was a vanilla fudge room with a big jagged mountain um, and two children ride a whale wagon straight into the pounding and cutting room. Um, There's a type of candy that warms you up and two children like greedily eat as much of it as they can. And they presumably spontaneously combust. Um, There's a girl who's like, I want to go. Yep, Miranda Piker, she's filthy, she's rude, she's disobedient, and she's turned into peanut brittle because now at least her parents will have something sweet. Oh my, <laughs> what a bizarre book. It's a very bizarre book, and it's a it's even more bizarre that it is kind of so captivating to right. read because it is so different from most things that you've seen. The chapters are short, it's punchy, it's pretty funny, the illustrations are exactly what you think they are they're kind of like iconic rolled doll illustrations um it was great i loved it it's bizarre enough in a in a way that it's worth reading if you're at all curious about it yes Um, right like it's super short and just read it because it's gonna be weird it's 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 super short it took me like a couple hours to read i don't well and and here's the thing i don't think it's just read it because it's gonna be weird i think if you want to read a rolled doll book to read because it's going to be weird. You should read its sequel, Charlie and the Great uh, Glass Elevator, which is ju- it's just episode. weird, right? Yeah, plug for a previous episode. It's absolutely a weird book. This is a book that I would I'd give to a kid. You know, like I would give to, I, I would read this to my kid because it is weird. It is different, but it's also like captivating and really good, which I think is the difference between this one and great glass Joe, elevator i have a question so you you mm-hmm. read great glass elevator and i i yes i maybe you mentioned this maybe you didn't but i don't imagine you read charlie charlie and the chocolate factory on a regular basis so having read charlie and charlie and the chocolate factory now does it like bridge better into great glass elevator like does do those two work together or is great glass elevator still super bonkers and kind of not very very good I, mm, I think it's super bonkers okay. and not very good. <laughs> not right? even like, Charlie I, I think the Chocolate Factory can save the glass elevator. No, like I, I think like you see it a little bit more, like kind of seeing this Willy Wonka makes that okay. Willy okay. Wonka make a little bit more sense and stuff like that. But, but I think, I think Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a beloved children's classic, and there's a reason you've never heard of Great Glass Elevator before. Nice. You know, episode nice. ninety-seven of this show or whatever it was. <laughs> well, we listened to this. We show. brought it back into the public eye, dragged it kicking and screaming into the uh-huh did you like it yeah I, I loved it like i it was really a pleasant surprise it was a really quick read i i actually wasn't expect I, it's weird to say i wasn't expecting much because i kind of knew what right. it would be 
when I started reading it, my first thought was, oh my God, it's the movie mm, exactly. Okay. Right? Like, like this is the movie exactly. It's like a one-to-one recreation. But one of the things that was enjoyable reading this was kind of extracting where those differences were. Gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to a new segment. Great. Uh-huh. Ooh, I like it when Nick yeah, brings segments. Good. All right. Welcome to Safe Space. <laughs> oh, At boy. the end of each episode, you will each get a chance to say one negative thing about your books, and it will not be held against you. Hence, this feels safe like space. a big trick. Nothing on this show has ever felt like a safe space for me. <laughs> That's why that's why we're naming it Safe Space. You know, when we started doing this show, like like way back in episode like two and three, I would get really stressed out about it. Like this would be like one of the biggest points of stress in my life. Like I really enjoyed talking to you guys every week, but I would get like nervous for it. I no longer feel that way, but I think it's mostly because <laughs> I've been absolutely wrong dry by you two monsters. <laughs> I don't want the lit heads to feel like they're being goddamn sold every week. Do you yeah, understand what I'm saying? Oh, oh, this book yeah, is we've, so we've, good. We've this, done this oh, before. This book, oh, you got to read this book. We know. I, I can be. I can <laughs> be. I'll be, I'll be out there. <laughs> well, there's. Some I can stinkers. be a little bit like overly positive about stuff, like finding the good. So I like this idea. I've also been told that I'm overly positive yeah. as well. Ian, would you like to go first? Is there? You don't have to say anything bad, but this is a safe space. If you'd like to get anything off your I'll, chest. I'll say, I'll say something that, that surprised me and disappointed me a little bit about the book that I've read. Um, it is... T- time to get yeah, real, Ian. It's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit shorter and less kind of substantive than I wanted it to be. Because like... Now feel free to really light this book. I mean, up, no, it's, I'm not really going to say it's like racist you, or stuff. You really it's, want it, it. It's honestly a little, kind of more, more more wholesome than a lot of the other doll. Not wholesome. That's the wrong word. Kind of kind of friendly and fuzzy. Um, it's pleasant, but like it's just kind of Gertrude Stein said there isn't much there. There talking about Oakland, California. There's just it's just kind of just kind of surface, and it's. Brutal. Joseph? Um, Nick, I liked a lot about this book. Let me just preface by saying that. But right. my condemnation of it, I think, might be damning. And it's going to come just in four words. The movie is better. <laughs> Brutal. All right. Well, the safe space is over. Now, since you guys really didn't like these books, I'm going to take that into account. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what Ian's book was about. It was we got a history lesson which I found fascinating. Um what was the, the name gre- of it? The Ian? Gremlins. The Gremlins. That's interesting. I Curiosity killed the cat. Uh Joe, you lose. I'd like I I you know, I think I I don't know. Just just speaking on behalf of people my age, I feel like I know an, enough about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory mm. slash Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm. I'd like to hear a little bit more about this bizarre gremlin situation. All right, Litheads, I've got a bulleted list for you. Bullet point one, rate. Bullet point two, review. Bullet point three, suggest a theme. You don't know litpodcast.com. Bullet point four, suggest a book. Bullet point five, request a sticker. And bullet point six, tell a bookish friend. 
Thank you, Lance. Seems like a lot, but it's it's a, it's fair. It's a fair list. It's a fair list. <laughs> Bullet point seven. Suggest a sponsor. <laughs> yes. Make an <laughs> that ad button. We'll be going Make live soon, Litheads. I am going to read you a quote describing describing the gremlins. It was sometime during the Battle of Britain when hurricanes and spitfires were up from dawn till dark and the noise of battle was heard all day in the sky, when the English countryside from Thanet to Severn was dotted with the wreckage of planes. It was in the early autumn, when the chestnuts were ripening and the apples were beginning to drop off the trees. It was then that the first gremlins were seen by the Royal Air Force. A pilot called Gus, patrolling in his hurricane at 18,000 feet over Dover, was chasing a Junkers 88 and squirting at it with his guns in short, sharp bursts. He could see a lot of little blue puffs trailing out astern. The German's rear gunner was returning his fire. He happened to glance to starboard, and there, standing on his wing, he saw a little man, scarcely more than six inches high, with a large round face and a little pair of horns growing out of his head. On his legs were a pair of shiny black suction boots, which made it possible for him to remain standing on the wing at 300 miles an hour. And do you know what he was doing? He had a large drill, almost as big as himself, grasped firmly in both hands, he was busy boring holes in the hurricane's wing. <laughs>